Grace and peace to you from our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Before we start, I have a short video for you. Dying in a hospital is not what's natural. That's not what's soft. In these kind of moments, you need softness. That's a pro-assisted suicide commercial from Canada. And it's a lie. Almost every single point in that commercial is a lie. If dying was glorious, if it was wonderful, if it was beautiful, Hollywood would have already figured out how to package it and sell it to us. If it was cool, they wouldn't have needed all the special effects. They wouldn't have needed any of the soft, contemplative string music or any of the cool blue lighting. If the end were so cool, they would have televised it, recorded it, and celebrated. 
That woman didn't want to die. She may not have wanted to suffer. I'll grant you that. But this was not what she wanted. It troubles me. And it troubles me for a couple of number of reasons. Number one, this is from Canada, and Canada is a single-payer health system. Medicine is a commodity. It's a production. It's a produce. Men and women make health care. It's something that we do. We do it for ourselves. We do it for others. And it is an honorable estate, but it is not unending. Health care has limits. We saw this during the pandemic. Healthcare has limits. There's only so many beds, so many respirators, so many health pieces. There's only so much to go around. It has personnel. It has triage. It has decisions. It has verdicts. It has judgments. And death is not medicine. It has never been medicine. We do not treat patients by killing patients even if that's what they wish. The producer of this commercial is Simmons of Canada. They're a retailer. They sell clothes and shoes and pillows. Why are they spending their money to convince you that it's cool to kill yourself? I suspect because if it's cool for you to kill you, and if it's cool for me to kill me, And if I can kill me and you can kill you, then maybe we can both agree to just let grandma go. George Dullery helped his wife of 22 years, Marna LeBeau, commit suicide. Miss LeBeau was suffering from multiple sclerosis and near the end of her life. She was only able to wash her face and her hands and feed herself only if the food had already been cut up for her. Apply her makeup, brush her teeth. In addition, her memory had begun to fade. When she asked her husband if he would help, he said, of course I would help. And into effect, he said that he was astonished that she had fought so long and so hard for her life, saying that he himself would have given up long before she did. He learned that one of her medications could prove fatal if it was taken in sufficiently large dose. So over several months, he cut back her dosage, saving up enough of this medicine to which he thought would be enough to kill her. And then on Independence Day, they shared their final meal together, their traditional celebratory meal of chicken and wine. He diluted the pills to provide a drinkable mixture, and she drank it, and she was dead the next morning. He said that his, the primary project of her life was to be independent and that she exercised her independence one last time on the 4th of July. He said that she was a considerate hero, an elderly person who's facing severe illness while noting that this money could be better spent somewhere else. The only problem is his side of the story isn't quite all that much straightforward. Delery was not as sympathetic a figure as we might first suppose, that his wife's decision may not have been as freely chosen as he claimed it was after she had passed. 
At any rate, having plea bargained down to the charge of attempted manslaughter for which he served four months in prison, he later admitted that he had actually suffocated his wife with a plastic bag because he did not think that the drugs would work quickly enough. Christians have always held that murder is an abomination. We have also always held that suicide is morally wrong. It's a contradiction of our nature as created objects that belong unto God. Suicide is an unwillingness to receive life from God moment by moment, day by day, from the hand of God who created us and gives us, as Luther says in the small catechism, all we need for this daily life. Modern man prefers to think of themselves as being autonomous. But we're not. And we know we're not. It's better for us to think of ourselves as a character. We are a character in a story of which God is writing. And we do not have authority over that story. Jesus is Lord. Jesus is Master. I am His servant. You are His servant. And God has the right to do with his servants as he sees fit. We see this in John the Baptist this morning. Now when he had heard, this is Jesus, when Jesus had heard that John the Baptist had been arrested, he withdrew to Galilee and leaving Nazareth, he went to live in Capernaum by the sea in the territory of Zebulon and Naphtali so that what was spoken by the prophet might be fulfilled. The land of Zebulon and the land of Naphtali, the way by the sea beyond the Jordan, Galilee of the Gentiles, the people dwelling in darkness have seen a great light. And for those dwelling in the region of the shadow of death upon them, a light is dawned. It is time for Jesus to begin his ministry. And he begins it by saying, repent for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. Jesus does not start his ministry until John the Baptist's ministry comes to a close. John doesn't realize that his part in this mission is over. And everything about John's mission, everything about John's life from this point on is suffering and death. And it's not John's place to question that. A good author will simply not change the complexion of their characters. I'm reminded of the last season of The Office. Remember The Office? It's a cute little show. John Krasinski was handed a script at the very, the very last year of that show. And in this show, in this script, it had Jim Halpert cheating on his wife, Pam Beasley. John refused. He refused to do the episode. He said, this has to be rewritten. That show was basically, it was set in an office that had a lot of hijinks to it, but it's basically a show about, about Halpert's love for Pam Beasley. The whole thing is a love story. 
And to end that love story with Jim betraying his beloved Pam, he said that the, the, the fans of the show will never, ever forgive you. It goes against John Halpert's character. You cannot do this, he says. And he won. The thing of his characters, even fictional characters, do not determine their own plot line. It's a contradiction to their very being. And we are dependent beings, whether we like to think about it or not. And our independence is to a certain extent shadows. However sincerely we think. Thus suicide as a rational project, as an expression of freedom, it's not freedom. It's idolatry. It's idolatry. The desire to be the creator as opposed to being the created. To lord over the end of our days. And to refuse to participate in the story any longer. It's not freedom. It's bondage. It's bondage to sin. It's bondage to self. It's bondage to the world. It's bondage to our own will. This is the essence of original sin. That what I want is the most important thing. And I'll have what I want no matter what. Can imagine ending life on such a note. It's not beautiful. Of course, suicide is often the result of depression. It's often the result of emotional illness. In such cases, not really what you would call a rational undertaking. But we do not regard a person in such a state as a rational agent. But there's also no reason to deny the truth that suicide can sometimes be undertaken by those who are not emotionally ill and who are responsible for their own actions. Such a suicide has a Promethean quality to it. It is a rejection of our status as creature in the hands of God. And for a society in love with individuality and in love with autonomy as much as ours is, this can be viewed this, this may seem not only objectionable, but peculiar. My fear is that suicide, self-assisted suicide, euthanasia becomes for us a peculiar opinion. A peculiar opinion held by a peculiar people based upon a peculiar religion that no one else shares. My fear is that we probably have already lost this argument under the world, and we lost this argument in the same way we tended to lose the abortion battle, the same way we lost the battle between marriage of one man and one woman, the same way we're losing the battle on drugs. Well, the church says God says no, and we leave it at that, and then the world looks at us and says, well, I don't believe in your God, so step off. We're going to do what we want. And you, you can have your, your silly little private opinion. Just keep it to yourself. Now, yes, God says no is good enough for you. It's good enough for me, I would hope. But it turns into a private opinion. Hardly the basis for public, public, uh, public status or public opinion. But Christians are not the only ones who believe this. 
Christians are not the only ones who believe that your life is not yours and you don't have the right to do with it as you see fit. When Cuban revolutionary government official Augusto Martinez Sanchez committed suicide, Fidel Castro issued this statement. We are deeply sorry for this event in accordance with the elementary principles of revolution. We believe that this conduct by a revolutionary is unjustifiable and improper. We believe that Comrade Martinez could not consciously have committed this act since every revolutionary knows that he does not have the right to deprive his cause of a life that does not belong to him. He can only sacrifice it against the enemy. Suicide, Fidel Castro says, is immoral and wrong. It's not your life, Comrade. You don't have the right to take it away. Now, granted, Fidel thinks that he has the right to take it away. But I'm just telling you, it's not just Christians who hold this idea that your life is not your possession and you have absolute rights over it. Hence, Christians should not cooperate or request suicide or even assisted suicide. And just a couple of, a, we'll talk about terms for a second. Euthanasia is simply murder. They call it something else so it doesn't sound so bad. Suicide is when you kill yourself. Assisted suicide is when somebody helps me to kill myself. And euthanasia is when somebody else just kills you. The temptation is to believe that my life is my own and that I have the rights to do with it as I see fit. We're tempted to believe that another's life is his own and that he has the right to do what he sees fit with it. An equally powerful tempting opinion is our desire to bring relief to those who suffer and suffer greatly. You will hear this as this debate continues through our society. Should we not be bringing relief to those who suffer? And as people of compassion, I think that's the line that works the best upon us. They know that. The argument for euthanasia chiefly rests upon these two points. It's my life, therefore, combined with compassion. And usually these two points are taken together. Advocates of euthanasia love to put these two points together. You will hear it said like this all the time. They tend to argue that it should be permitted only if the person euthanized is suffering greatly and while competent has assisted, has requested such assistance. I suspect that that's a lie. In fact, I don't suspect it's a lie. I know it's a lie. I know it's a lie. Anytime people tell you that we could do Y so long as we have X and Z at the same time, as time goes on, as Y becomes more important to our society, X and Z will subtly separate. And they will move farther and farther away. It's a strategic maneuver aimed at keeping the argument alive. Whatever our judgment or motives are, the simple fact is, As a matter of logic, these two prongs of these two arguments will gradually become independent of each other. If self-determination, because that's part of what the argument is, is self-determination. If self-determination is so important that we have the right to end our lives, then how can we insist that such help may rightly be offered only if they're suffering greatly? If self-determination is so important, why do they have to be suffering greatly? 
And what does suffering greatly mean? What about those who don't suffer greatly? What if they only suffer a little? What if they suffer very lightly, but they're wimps? I mean, on what came of a scale? On a scale to one to ten, do they have to be a ten? Can they be a nine? Can they be eight? Can they be a six? If they have a broken leg and it's like a four, is that, is that enough suffering? Are we going to have a panel to determine is this suffering great enough? Do we have to employ public officials now who are going to work for the CDC or give us guidelines as to what, what suffering looks like and, and how much suffering is acceptable? What about those who are not suffering physically but are just suffering mentally? What if they're just super ugly? Because that can bring suffering, right? Ask any junior high. That's the worst kind of suffering that you can bring upon a 13-year-old. I know, I was an ugly 13-year-old. It's a horrible time in my life. I hated it. If autonomy is so important, how can we deny death to anyone? Similarly, if the suffering of others is so powerful a claim upon us, then we should kill them in order to bring their suffering unto an end. I find it hard to believe that we restrict ourselves only to those who are self-determining. Why restrict ourselves to those who are only competent? Second of all, what what does competence mean? And at what point does competence become stopped? Again, do we have a panel? Do we have guidelines? Are we going to use guidelines? Do we need a panel? Do we need an entirely another sort of round in the CDC to figure out who's competent enough? Is a wink enough? If grandma is stuck in bed and hasn't gotten out of bed in two weeks, if she raises her finger like this, is that enough for competence? Does she have to sign her name? Can someone else sign her name? Can she revoke it? When can she revoke that? Now, the world's going to do what the world is going to do. My opinion here is with you Christians, you have to know what your view is, and it's better to make up your mind now as opposed to later. And I believe that when it comes to suicide, assisted suicide, and euthanasia, we should dissent, and we should dissent as loudly as we possibly can. Because the world's going to do what the world's going to do. And to a certain extent, well, God's word says... Well, the world doesn't care what God's word says. But it's still morally wrong. Euthanasia is not simply personal autonomy. It is not simply intervention in another person's private choice. On the contrary, it requires participation of at least one other person, and therefore it becomes communal. It involves the larger community, and giving its approval is an act of abandonment. And if it becomes permissible or even acceptable practice to have our freedom and our independence enhanced in such way, in one sense, I doubt it. I don't think it will allow more freedom. I think it will become less freedom. If we're given a new option, a new option at the end of our life that we can end our life when we see fit, how we see fit, eventually it will get to the point where people will say, what about option B? And pressure will rise to accept the new option. To be the considerate hero who doesn't put their family through all that. After all, that money really could be spent someplace better. 
And if and when euthanasia receives social approval, what looks like freedom will turn out to be less freedom. In short, there are great reasons not to acquiesce. And as Christians, I suspect we're most likely drawn to the argument of compassionate relief. And to be sure, we do not seek suffering. We do not want suffering, not for us, not for ourselves, not for our loved ones, not even for neighbors that we haven't talked to in 15 years. We don't seek suffering. We don't want to see that suffering. But the principle that governs Christian compassion is not the minimizing of suffering. It is the maximizing of care. The goal of minimizing suffering no doubt could be achieved by eliminating the sufferers. But it's not a moral option. We do not cure disease by killing patients. The world will refuse to understand the suffering as a, as a significant part of human life. But what suffering persists... And suffering can have meaning, and it can have purpose, and it is indeed a part of human life. We should not, of course, pretend that suffering is good, nor should we seek it. Jesus in Gethsemane has this, this, his, own, his own dilemma with suffering as he prays, Father, let this cup pass from me. Jesus doesn't want to go through the cross. It's not like he gets done praying and marches down boldly. They have to come get him. They they take him down to crucify him. Jesus, at the end of his prayer, at the end of his agony in Gethsemane on Good Friday, says, not my will be done, but yours. This is the model of the Christian life. That my will is not done within my life, but that God's will is done in my life. And we say that every single week. Thy kingdom come. Thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. In the third petition of the Lord's Prayer, we discuss this. God's will be done. And God's will is done with or without our prayers. But we ask God that his will be done in our life. And in doing so, we pray against our own will. Luther bids us to notice this as he directs us in the prayer against ourselves. When we pray, thy will be done, we pray against ourselves. In Luther's expedition, ex- exposition of the Lord's Prayer for the Layman, volume 24, 48, Luther argues, and I read, We have no greater enemy than yourself. You see, your will is most formidable agent against us. We pray, O Father, do not let me get to the point where my will is done. Lord, break my will. Resist my will. No matter what happens in my life, let my life be governed by your will, not my will. As no one's will prevails in heaven, so may it be on earth. Such a petition is indeed very painful to our human nature. For our own will is the greatest, most deeply rooted evil against us. And nothing is dearer to us than our own will. Therefore, we are asking for nothing less than this petition, than cross, torment, adversity, and sufferings of every single kind, since these serve towards the goal of destroying our own will. Thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Suffering that comes is evil. 
But God has not abandoned us unto that suffering. He is still the agent in our life, and he can bring good from it, just as he did with Jesus, just as he did with Joseph, as he did with Job, as he did with David when he was caught in his affair and murder of of Uriah the Hittite. We are called simply to live out our story, the story in which God is the author, and to do so as faithfully as we can. Our task, therefore, is not to abandon those that suffer, but to maximize our care for them as they live out the end of their story. We ought to always care and never kill. That is, in fact, been precisely the deep commitment not to abandon those who suffer. It is the powerful, motivating force that has resulted in the development of modern medicine. To step away from that is is a step backwards in time, not forward. Our continuing task is not to eliminate suffering, but to find better ways of dealing with it. And if we cannot always fully relieve suffering, we must remember that even God cannot really suffer it or solve it himself. But Jesus simply suffers through it. If it's the way of God, should it also be the way of his creation? That God himself lives through the problem. And Jesus still bears that suffering upon his hands, upon his feet, and upon his side. For it is the way of God. In his way, a steadfast love through suffering. Not around it. Not for the point of avoiding it. It is a mystery of God's own being. And one that we don't have the right to solve. The power that truly comes and proves itself to be the way and the life and the truth is laid out for us in the life of Jesus himself, our master and our redeemer. In Jesus' name, amen.